Resolute Square. There was also maintained what was called an enemy's list, which was rather extensive and continually being updated. Democrats want Republicans dead. Where I could stand in the middle of Fifth Avenue and shoot somebody and I wouldn't lose any voters, okay? The women with the least likelihood of getting pregnant are the ones most worried about having abortions. On January 6th of 2021, you had tens of thousands of people peacefully protesting. No, it's not a right-wing conspiracy theory. It's not QAnon. It's real. <laughs> I'm Rick Wilson, and this is The Enemies List. Our guest today on The Enemies List is a guy whose voice you've heard, if you're listening, as our family does, to Morning Edition on NPR. It's Steve Inskeep, who is one of the co-hosts of Morning Edition and is a terrific author. And today we're going to talk about his new book, Differ We Must, How Lincoln Succeeded in a Divided America. It's coming out on October 5th, I believe, and Steve will be doing a press tour on it. But I wanted to talk to him today because – as another amateur historian of Lincoln and as somebody who's who's got a, a shelf or two of Lincoln bios and Lincoln history and Civil War history upstairs in the upstairs library, I read this, Steve, with absolute fascination because I think you caught something. There are, as I was sort of alluding to, maybe more than any other president, Lincoln biographies and histories out there that were contemporaneous to today that are enormously influential – but your book really talks about how Lincoln interacted with people with whom he disagreed, with whom he had either a, a political or a moral or a philosophical or a personal difference of some kind. And, and what I found fascinating was, was you get in this book a much different picture of Lincoln. There's a sort of – since he's this sort of dour, stern figure in some ways. But in this book, you really caught a different side of Lincoln in a lot of these cases where he was witty and funny and compelling in different ways. Talk to us a little bit about – first off, what led you to write the book and what did you learn about Lincoln in doing this book that you – that surprised you in the process? Well, I've always been an admirer of Lincoln as I think you have too. I mean isn't there some project of some kind that – that you're involved in? Yeah, there's a little project I've been involved in for a while now. <laughs> okay, that's right, that's right, exactly. So this is a very common thing for people to admire Lincoln. I don't claim anything special. But I grew up in Indiana, which is where Lincoln spent a lot of his youth. Uh, I've thought about Lincoln all my life. There were Lincoln books in my house all my life. In fact, a book that my mom gave me is over here, Carl Sandburg's biography of Lincoln. So I've thought about him for a long time. Um, and I'd written a couple of books about 19th century history, uh, where I kept coming across Lincoln. But the thing that really brought the book into focus for me in the last couple of years or last several years is the last several years. I wanted to do a book where he had a bunch of these face-to-face -face meetings with people. I thought that's a way to get across the kind of the great diversity of America. But I did realize basically from covering events as a journalist that the story is the difference, the disagreement, um, which is our time now, and it's really what democracy is, is how do we deal with our differences in a big, you know, republic where everybody has different opinions. The thing that struck me right off the bat was Lincoln was – he was always someone who approached these problems and these disagreements with people trying to find some commonality, trying to find some way to connect with them, some way to communicate with them, even in things he disagreed on. Like the, you, you talk about the letter to his slave-owning friend. Um, and and how he said, you know, if, if this is going to divide us, it's going to divide us, but let's not let it divide our friendship. Let's find out how we get there. 
the difference today is we are so very polarized. We're so very – I mean it strikes me that that we have gone a very, very long way from that sort of genial and, and engaged desire to have a communication with people that we disagree with. Yeah. I mean, there, I think that there are even people today who feel it's uh, dangerous or even morally wrong to talk to somebody who has a really wrong viewpoint. And if they don't think it's morally wrong, they think it's naive and hopeless because you don't think you can persuade the other person. If somebody loves Donald Trump, you don't think you can persuade them. If somebody hates Donald Trump, you don't think you can persuade them. I felt that Lincoln showed me something else, something deeper about those kinds of exchanges. When I go through these meetings where he meets with slave owners and he meets with radical abolitionists who don't think he's radical enough, all kinds of people, uh, he doesn't necessarily change their mind. They don't necessarily change his mind. But in interacting, Lincoln would figure out if there was just enough of an agreement that they already had that they could work together in a coalition. And even if that didn't work, he was trying to figure out, how can I take advantage of this person or this situation? How can I use this situation? It's kind of wrong. <laughs> I mean, it's incredible to think that one of his generals, George McClellan, was incredibly frustrating, disagreed with him about everything, and didn't even really agree with him about ending slavery. But Lincoln managed to use this guy to help get out the Emancipation Proclamation. He put McClellan back in charge to win a military victory, which set the stage for the proclamation. You're right. I, one thing I did notice, there, there was a through line there. It's not always altruistic. It wasn't always because Lincoln just was a nice guy and he wanted, to, he wanted to, to be friends with everybody. He wanted to get to the X, as we say. He wanted to get to the goal line. And it strikes me that the, the, a lot of the through line through the whole book uh, in a lot of these stories is that you know, slavery really, really was the defining issue of his life. It really was the thing that shaped so many of his interactions, almost from being, almost from as a very young man, um, and throughout his his untimely assassination, talk a little bit about how that through line shaped him, because it it really does seem to be at a level of intractability at that time. That's that is a thing that strikes me as similar to today. People who were dug in on slavery or on abolition were very much in their corners. And that that's a little bit of a resonance of today. Talk to me about how that defined Lincoln and how it shaped him. Yeah, I've got a friend and former colleague, Noel King, who now has a, a great podcast on Vox, who read some of this book. And she said, I previously would have said Lincoln succeeded because he was good. I now understand Lincoln succeeded because he was smart. And I think Lincoln, Lincoln, by and large, was also good, but but he had to be strategic for the very reason you said. People were dug in on slavery, and not only that, it would have been hard, you know, there were no polls, I could be wrong, but it would have been hard to take a poll and get 51% in favor of any particular position on slavery. Many people favored it. Many people said they were against it, but were really afraid of anything that would happened to end it because they didn't want, they were white people who didn't want to live next to free black people. I mean, all kinds of points of view. And this was the political challenge that Lincoln faced. He had to somehow build a coalition where there was no apparent majority for any particular uh, uh, position. And he did have to be really strategic and patient as well 
and careful in what he said and also careful in what he didn't say. And, you know, as a pro, I bet you understand both sides of that equation. It's both the message that you have and when you learn to shut up. He was very good at shutting up, which is surprising given how much he talked. He was a he was a disciplined communicator. He understood that there were lines that he couldn't cross. I mean, even as he was pushing for emancipation, even as he was pushing to solidify the North behind the war, there were lines he knew that he had to go in in, in a sort of staged fashion. He had to go in a sort of a phase line fashion to get up to where he was. Yeah. Do you think he started in the Civil War? Do you think he started with the emancipation in his head as 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 the goal line? I think he knew it was coming, but he was waiting, waiting. Yeah. You know, but it's kind of like you, you, it doesn't mean that he was ready to do it. You know, he clearly wasn't ready to do it. He even stopped. I mean, that's a, that's one of the chapters in the book. John C. Fremont, this union general, um, tried to emancipate the slaves of Missouri. And Lincoln said, whoa, 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 wait a minute. You're doing this in the wrong way at the wrong time. Um, and it was clear that that his goal was unifying as much of the country as he could because he needed a majority. In the same way you need a majority in an election, he needed a majority in the battlefield. He couldn't lose a bunch of states, and there were several slave states that were still in the Union. Didn't want to lose them. And he wanted to focus on unity, and he wasn't ready, and the country he felt was not ready for the dramatic step that he eventually took. It was clearly in the air. I mean, Frederick Douglass was writing about the necessity of going to war against slavery from like April of 1861. And the logic is obvious. Like the South, which wasn't really arguably under that much threat, decided to go to war to preserve slavery. And that must be met with war for the destruction of slavery, said Frederick Douglass. Lincoln didn't agree, but he knew it was out there. He had to know it was coming. And he talked about it more and more as we got from 1861 into 1862 about what that would mean and why they would do that and how it would work. I thought that was one of the most fascinating chapters was the, the Frederick Douglass chapter. I mean, I thought Mary Wise, Frederick Douglass, and Lean Bear were all very interesting things because that was in an era where where the white political leadership didn't really feel like they had to treat with those with those demographics in the society in the same way. And yet he understood the value of of coming to good conclusions with all of them. Yeah. Now, now you mentioned, uh, I mean, you mentioned in each case, uh, the two people of color and, and, and a woman there. I, I really, I really appreciate that you got that far in the book. It's very flattering, Rick. Thank you very much. No, I read. Um, but the, <laughs> thank you. But as you know, from reading, uh, not all of these meetings are a success. Lean no, Bear, yeah, yeah. the Cheyenne leader who came as part of this uh, Plains Indian delegation, Native Nations delegation from, uh, from the West, and Lincoln appealed to him and others for peace on the plains. But he'd brought the wrong people to the meeting because it wasn't the, uh, the, the nations that were causing trouble in that case. It was white settlers who were invading uh, Cheyenne land. And even after having seized most of the land, were not being peaceful about it. Uh, it's kind of a, the, maybe the most tragic chapter. But Lincoln was having the conversation, is your point. And Lincoln had the conversation with Mary Ellen Wise, uh, who showed up at the White House and said, I'm a woman, but I dressed as a man and got into the army and fought in the army, and now I want my back pay. Her story is really, really dicey, but there really were hundreds of people, hundreds of women who did this. 
you know, again, it was a time of basically, you know, white, white property men were basically the leadership class of the country. It was good to read all of those interactions, you know, for good and for bad. He at least understood the country was, was evolving. And I, I think there's an argument that the Civil War has never stopped affecting American culture and society and history and politics. It's never really ended in some weird pathways. But Lincoln, he, he had a certain clarity about the country, about preserving the country and about preserving the institutions and norms that it was building over time, even if he had to press on a few things like habeas corpus during the during the war. And it, it struck me that this is one of the guys who who although he had the ability to persuade and to and to almost demand a lot of power he also wasn't holding on to it with a death grip he really wanted the country to work uh along the lines that that it should have as a representative democracy and as a functioning republic these meetings with people who disagreed that's what democracy is it's trying to figure out how you can deal with the person who's different from you because it's a free country and we're all different. Um, I don't want to go on and on, but Lincoln had almost this mystical belief in America. I don't feel it's going too far to say that it was almost his religion. I mean, he believed in God in some fashion, uh, except on occasions when he didn't seem to, but he was never a member of a church. And yet there's this speech when he says, He's talking about the Declaration of Independence, and he says, my ancient faith tells me that all men are created equal. And that was the goal. And uh, you can criticize him today for not being for perfect equality for black people. There's a lot of statements that you can say that that, that do not stand up today. But he also said, I mean, self-government requires everybody to have an equal voice in government. And he said, all men are created equal. It's not a lie. It's a promise. It's never perfectly attained, but it can be mm-hmm. approximated and we can make it better and better for people of all colors everywhere. That's a thing Lincoln said that I think he really believed. And again, going, you know, going back to the, how slavery is sort of the defining through line of that era for him and, and for the country. And it is, I mean, that you really can draw that line forward from the aspiration of a, of, of equality to the arc of history and civil rights movement and everything else. And even the backlashes of today still echo in a lot of that. The political language that you read then has a resemblance to the language that I read and hear now. And I don't mean to say that everything's the same. It's just like the Civil War all over again. These guys are like the Confederates. These guys are like Hitler. I mean, I don't mean any of that stuff. I just mean human nature is about the same. We're sitting here in the same country, sometimes walking around the same buildings like the Capitol, and there are these resonances and and ideas and tropes that people have inherited. I mean, I think about Frederick Douglass, who's super famous for many reasons. But one of the reasons he was famous in his time as an anti-slavery orator and writer was that he appeared all the time in pro-slavery newspapers. He'd be mentioned all the time because pro-slavery editors wanted to say that white anti-slavery leaders were following the agenda of this black man because that would discredit them. I mean, a super racist thing for a super racist audience. But you can go around and find those kinds of smears today. I mean, turn on the television, flip around, and you will find someone saying things that are sort of like that. 
the utility of the racial attack has not diminished in our political culture, very, very sadly. No, not at all. There is a massive, massive corpus of Lincoln books, as we were talking about in the very beginning. What influenced your writing in this in this book the most? What did you find that was like the most illustrative or compelling read about Lincoln? I mean, you start with Lincoln's own words. I mean, there's this thing I could go around the corner and show it to you. The collected works of Abraham Lincoln. It's like everything that he's confirmed to have written or said. I've seen it. It's like 1,500 pages it's long like, or something. It's more than that. It's eight volumes. <laughs> So it might be like 4,000 pages. It's a lot. Oh, my God. <laughs> um, and, and there it's searchable databases of, of this stuff. And so you start there. Then there are all these things that you read. Like there's, you know, David Herbert Donald's Lincoln from 25 years ago. I, I've read repeatedly for a long time. Um, the Carl Sandburg Lincoln that my mom gave me is mm-hmm. fascinating. It's almost like a giant family Bible. I mean, there's such reverence for Lincoln. There are more recent books. John Meacham's book on Lincoln is super cool. David Reynolds' book on Lincoln is super cool. Um, there's, I, I could go on for some time. There are individual little studies. There is a book of newspaper articles about the 1860 convention, which um, I'm, <laughs> it's called Sound the Trumpet or something like that. I'm going to send right. you this because I think as a, as a okay, cool. I, I love, it. love yeah. this. And it's just like descriptions of what it's like during the negotiations. There's a million materials and it's really intimidating. Like you think, what could I possibly say that's different or new with all this stuff? And then you realize there is so much stuff that you can find things that feel new. When I began focusing on just these 16 meetings, I began finding things that were very new to me, details that I hadn't thought about before. I began understanding things better. And then the last step, really, and this is really important for writing and creating anything, I think, you need to kind of let your mind go still and just kind of ask yourself, what is the thing that I really think? What really matters here? Let me let go of what all these writers who are great writers had to say and figure out if I have something different to say. And I mean, you'll decide if I if I did that. But but I was happy to be doing this project. I think you really did hit it, hit the mark here. Um, and what's, one thing that interests me also is, yes, you're drawing this picture of Lincoln, but I was also deriving, I think, a pretty rich picture of the culture of the time, the political and social landscape came through to me in in thinking about these people and reading about his interactions with them. I think you caught that in a way. Was that was that a deliberate part of this or did that sort of work as a as a happy I hope that I did and that kind of builds off my past two books. I had this book about mm-hmm. Andrew Jackson of the Cherokees and I got obsessed with like the map of the United States and the way it changed as the west, you know, as the white settlers moved west. And then the next book was also about westward exploration. So I'm thinking about maps and the spread of new technologies that are like the railroad and the telegraph and daily newspapers. And then all of that kind of explodes by Lincoln's, you know, middle adulthood. And the world is changing rapidly and communication is speeding up. And suddenly there's instantaneous communication from city to city and there's daily newspapers and there's this never ending news cycle and things that were really new and weird and disorienting for people to deal with that I think may have added to their stresses and made it a little bit more difficult to deal with their differences. You know, if, if you're in the North and in a free state and you know that slavery exists and literally millions of people are enslaved, but it's all way far in the South and you never see mm-hmm. it and hear about it. It's probably easy to forget about it. But then newspapers begin bringing you stories of this. And the railroad uh, 
goes south and then a train comes north and an escaped slave steps off. And like suddenly you're, you're, you're connected to the story in a way that you weren't. And uh, in this case, probably for the good. I mean, it forced people to look at each other and ask what the heck they were doing. So it's this fascinating cultural landscape. I'm really gratified to hear what you had to say about my portrayal of it. But I find it endlessly fascinating and endlessly relevant to the world I cover now. It's two things you mentioned. First, to look back on the 1860 convention, that's something that fascinates me because it was six years between the collapse of the Whig Party in 1854 and after Kansas, Nebraska, and Lincoln becoming their first Republican president and becoming, you know, defining a brand new political party based on the idea of reforming and 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 changing and, and eliminating the institution of slavery. And that that speed of transition surprises people even today because they think of the parties, the two parties right now as sort of eternal. Do you, by the way? I'm interested now. No? Okay. No, I don't. I, I've 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 written a lot about this, and I've thought about this a lot. And 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 I look. I think we have four functionally realistic parties in the country right now. There's a progressive party. There's a a centrist democratic party. There's a MAGA populist nationalist party, and there's a tiny itty bitty little fraction of people like me. Um, uh, former Republicans, libertarian inflected conservatives um, who who don't have all the freighting of the social conservative stuff, but who, you know, believe in limited government and the and the rule of law and things like that. Um, that's the tiniest party. We could put you sit the sit us around a Waffle House table, basically. Um, <laughs> but I, I don't think I don't think the parties are eternal. I think the Republican Party is under a a countdown clock on it. I think it can't survive demographically and politically after Trump goes. And I don't think it can survive politically after the last of the silent generation and the older baby boomers go. Just, it, you know, his his prime demo is 65 plus and those people aren't getting any younger. I mean, for the moment, I guess what holds them together is the threat of the other party, right? Like the other, the other guy winning is so dangerous. I've got to ally myself with these people I can't stand. The, I, I've sat in way too many focus groups to to believe that there's going to be any reform because you'll sit with these people and they'll say, I don't like Trump. He's mean. He's cruel. He's a bad man. He's corrupt. I hate him because of all this. But Joe Biden's a communist who will seize the means of production and put me on a work camp. And you're just like, the reality, I mean, th- that would be a, a, a challenge even for a Lincoln to like deal with the absolute disconnection from empirical fact. Oh, I mean, I, I, I would agree with that. But of course, Lincoln was dealing with people who said that enslaving millions of human beings was good for society and good for the slaves. So, I mean, there were some crazy things. Shockingly, we still have people making that argument today, (laughs) (laughs) which, you know, as much as I dislike Ron DeSantis' campaign and and I don't think highly of Ron DeSantis, the, the argument that slaves benefited being inserted into the Florida curriculum it's just like, no, there are certain lines you don't cross. You don't say slaves receive benefits from slavery. I'm sorry. Um, it just it doesn't work that way. Like if your point is that, I mean, I, th- I think, you know, we had on the guy who was an author of that. And he's like, I'm thinking of Frederick Douglass, who taught himself to read. Uh, and I would agree that's a triumph of the human spirit. That is gaining a skill while in slavery. That is not an advertisement for slavery. There's no up on slavery. There's no upside on slavery. Uh, your, your last chapter is about 
one of the other parts of his life where he had to negotiate and had to manage somebody who was mentally ill and difficult in many ways. And, and look, he was no he was not an easy guy to live with in a lot of ways either. But talk to us a little bit about Lincoln and and Mary Todd Lincoln and how that what you learned in that relationship and how that shaped him. Yeah, famously difficult marriage. Uh, they both came from Kentucky, but totally different class backgrounds. She was from a wealthy slave-owning family. He was very poor growing up, uh, but they were both ambitious. I mean, they had similarities and connections that drew them together, but uh, they were marked by tragedy. Child after child after child died, including one while they were in the White House. Uh, and uh, I mean, we can't say because there was no snowing around to do the, 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 the mental illness standards, but she sounds like someone who had a mental illness. Uh, and she certainly had difficulty dealing with setbacks and grief uh, and, and a lot of ego and demands for attention. Constant struggle for Lincoln, in many ways, embarrassing for this guy who tried to present a political, you know, uh, image of being very humble and down to earth. And she wanted to massively redecorate the White House and wear the fanciest clothes and travel to New York and and do all kinds of things, which surprisingly to me came off well for a while as first lady. But as it went on, it just got worse and worse and worse. Uh, the fanciness and, and the debts and everything else. Um, and it was a terrible struggle I think just for them to hold together through the Civil War. I put that at the end of the book for a number of reasons, but one of them is this. I did feel a similarity between the way Lincoln tried to manage his wife, often through forbearance and patience and just ignoring the terrible things to just kind of get through the day, and the way that he dealt with someone like General McClellan, you know, who was causing him <laughs> endless frustrations. And, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and I don't think I'm the first person ever to think of this, uh, but it really struck me. There, there was something about his marriage that may have taught him how to get through this day in his work life and something about his work life that may have taught him how to get through his marriage. I could see that. I could see that. Well, Steve, I want to thank you so much for joining us today on the Enemies List. Um, I, I, folks, I read this book in uh, in about uh, seven hours one afternoon. Uh, I loved it. Um, I am I am a I am a prolific reader of biography, and this was one that really struck me. Uh, and and Steve Inskeep, thank you again for joining us, folks. The book is "Differ We Must: How Lincoln Succeeded in a Divided America." You can catch Steve on Morning Edition. And uh, Steve, anywhere else that they can reach you on social media or? Oh gosh, uh, yes, I'm I'm still on uh, X, the, the the platform formerly known as Twitter. NPR Inskeep. I'm but I'm also on Threads. I'm on Post. I have a Substack, steveinskeep.substack.com. I'm all over the place. All right. Well, thank you again, Steve, for joining us today. Really appreciate it. The book is terrific, folks. Go out and get it wherever fine books are sold. Hey, today's enemies list features gigantic Putin suck ass. Mike Lee, U.S. Senator from the great state of Utah. Now, I love Utah. I love Utahns. I love the people. I I think the state is wonderful. Lived in Park City for a little while. I absolutely adore Utah and the people that live there. Except for you, Mike Lee. This week, Mike Lee is quoting the worst crazy pro-Russian propagandists in the world worried about what we call NAFO. Now, NAFO is an online movement, of which I am proud to be a member, the North Atlantic Fellows Organization. It's a sort of loose, casual collective of people who are trolling back against Russian propaganda and Russian messaging and is assertively pro-Ukrainian. So this week, Mike Lee came out. He was like, who is funding it? Is it the CIA or George Soros? You know what, Mike? It's everyone. It's all of us. We all support Ukraine. 
You are a pro-Putin douchebag. You have spent a lot of your time diminishing any credibility you have as either a conservative or a constitutionalist by equating Ukraine with the Nazis and Russia as the good guys. Dude, you're not this stupid. Maybe you are. You are this tendicious. I get that. But you understand in your heart that what you're doing is supporting a murderous genocidal attack on a country that is much closer to America's values than Vladimir Putin's hellhole is. But Mike, listen, I know you think of yourself as a very smart guy, but you're an asshole and you are in fact going to remain on the enemies list. Thanks again for listening to the enemies list. If you have any comments, questions, or if there's someone you'd like to hear on the podcast, hit me up on Twitter at the Rick Wilson. Thanks again for the wonderful support you've shown the pod. We're growing fast. It really helps if you will share this with your friends, your family, and anyone else who, like us, is trying to save democracy. While you're at it, if you could rate and review the podcast, I would be very much appreciative. I know this is the sort of thing you've heard a billion times. Please rate, review, like, blah, blah, blah. But you need to do it. It really does help us a lot. We are slaves to the algorithm, my friends. And if you do this, it will help get the pod out further. Anyway, thanks again for listening. I'll see you next time. And remember, whatever you do, stay off the list.